Welcome to We Have This Hope. My name is Emily Curzon. This is a podcast about the study of scripture, the art of remembering, and the practice of telling. On the show, we'll explore the ways God calls his people to remember by studying scripture together, and we'll hear individual stories of hope anchored in the beautiful and ancient practice of remembering. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to We Have This Hope. This is Emily Curzon. And today we're rounding out our remembering interview series on ventures. We've been hearing people tell the story of their first venture and what God's done in and through them as they create and innovate in the world. I've loved it so far, and today is going to be no exception. Today's remembering interview is taking a slightly different approach. So rather than what you might imagine as your typical venture, and I'm doing air quotes as I say typical, like a startup, business, social media platform, whatever you think of when you think venture, today you're actually going to be hearing the story of a church, Cornerstone Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is near and dear to my heart. Because this is my home church, this is where I worship, and these are my people. So to tell this story, I have with me two of the finest men in all the land. The first is my darling husband and co-interviewer, Dustin. Hi, dear. back again. You're back here. You're still employed. The second, and the one who's actually going to tell the story, is none other than the Reverend John Odom. John, I'm so glad you're here. A uh, long-time listener, first-time guest, so glad to be here. <laughs> Great. I do Great. love the of... podcast, and I've listened to every episode. Thank you. That means a lot. Before we actually get started, I'm going to embarrass John a little bit, because that's what you should do when you have a guest on your show, right? I'm here um, for it. All right. Great. Great. I'm going to tell you all a little bit about who John is before we get started. So John is the pastor of Cornerstone Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He has a Master's of Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary, and he is a priest in the Anglican Church of North America. But most importantly, his most impressive credential is that he's our friend. And and not just your like run-of-the-mill friend. He and his wife, Emily, are our inner circle. They know all the weird stuff about us, and they're still they still want to hang out. So all right, John. Before we get started in talking about the launch of Cornerstone, I want you to tell us a little bit about who you are, maybe a little bit about your professional history. Tell us about your amazing family, who they are, and then like what you were doing before you started working at Cornerstone. Yeah, married to Emily Odom, who I believe you all know. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have four children. Libby is 11 years old. Sam is nine. Gideon is five. And River will be two in February. I grew up in Tulsa. My parents came here for ORU in the late 60s, early 70s, and just stayed and um, grew up in the church. I felt a call to ministry when I was a kid, so like third grade in Turner Falls, Oklahoma at the Assembly of God Kids Camp and developed, started developing like a vocabulary of calling from like childhood into adolescence. After Emily and I spent a year in Honduras as missionaries, right after we got married, I providentially got a job at Asbury United Methodist Church, which was, I I now see as a seven-year pastoral apprenticeship. So the senior pastor there, Tom Harrison, gave me a lot of time and a lot of opportunity for which I did not have qualifications or experience. 
And so I got to preach a lot of bad sermons in front of a lot of people and learn how to visit people in the hospital and generally speak in public, be a pastor to people in 2013, 2014, kind of out of nowhere, there was a desire and interest in church planting in Midtown Tulsa. And I'd never been a part of a church plant, never worshiped in a church plant. And so it was a new idea. And uh, the Lord just started to develop an interest and an appetite for that. And then there was kind of a, a moment where it all went from inaction to action and waiting to, holy cow, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Like almost yeah. overnight. I love the phrase you use of vocabulary of calling. I and mean, it's just something I've been thinking about in launching this podcast because, you know, for me, the experience of God calling me to do something has ever been like a flashing neon line, but rather like kind of a slow sort of on my part, like investigative process where I'm trying to sync up with whatever God's already doing. So I wondered, would you talked a little bit about that, but would you say more about what were some like key milestones or moments maybe that led you to say I'm being called to plant a church. Yeah. The first word in my vocabulary of calling, and this was as a child, was I felt like the Lord called me to be a comforter to people. And then in the seventh grade, I felt like the Lord gave me almost like a vision. I was meant to be like a safe harbor for people. It was in getting the early experiences of getting to preach at Asbury that I discovered, oh, I really love to preach. I really, I'm not good at it yet, but I really love it. There was a time before I was in ordained ministry at Asbury where a pastor on the north side of Tulsa called Tom Harrison, my boss, and said, hey, I need to go out of town this weekend pretty suddenly. Do you have a pastor who can come and preach for me? It was a church of a dozen people or so. He said, well, I don't have a pastor, but I do have John. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I very intensively like prepared a sermon and went and preached there. And half of the congregation was asleep and a few friends came to support us. And, but it just felt it was really good. And then I had the chance to preach at uh, a morning and an evening service a few weeks after that. And I preached in the morning and my heart was racing so fast after that morning that Emily had to drive me home. I slept for an hour and a half hard And then I came and and did it again. And so it was over time and through a lot of experience that I began to realize, okay, I I have a shepherding and teaching instinct, and I think a temperament and gifting. And I could look back and see experiences where that was tested and confirmed, and then I think importantly, confirmed by others. That's Mm -hmm. an important part, I think, of our calling. I think a, a, an important moment for me was in the fall of 2014, where I was invited by one of my heroes to go on this, I don't even know how this happened for me, a trip to the Dominican Republic with um, World Vision. And I ended up on this trip with eight to 10 guys who are pastors of large churches and they're writing books. And I'm the junior most associate pastor at the United Methodist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we spend this week together, and the last night we're uh, actually smoking cigars out on a patio in the Dominican Republic, and they're talk- they've been talking all week about these offensive strategies they want to have for God's kingdom. And I just say, guys, I'm the junior most associate pastor at a Methodist church, and I think I might be called to be a church planter, a senior pastor, and I, I don't know what to do. 
And it was a holy moment, I think, for everybody. And they just spoke into my life and affirmed me, having spent a week together and a lot of conversations. And it was the next month that I went to my bosses and said, I, I want to take some steps to begin prayerfully exploring a call to church planting. And they said, go for it. There were kind of some false starts where I thought it was going to happen and it didn't happen. And then it all led to an apex moment on December 29th, 2016. Emily and I had been in a season of focused prayer during Advent, just asking God, what are we supposed to do? This call to this, we feel like this call to church plants here, but there are no doors that are opening themselves. What should we do? And I was getting my, the timing belt on my car changed. And I was at a coffee shop uh, in the Pearl District of Tulsa. And I just felt like the Lord said, it's time to get moving. And I thought, well, I've, I've, I've gone down this road and that road and nothing really seems to be a likely option. And I just felt like the Lord said, get moving. My, my biggest concern was we have two kids at the time. We want to have a third kid. If I, you know, stepped out of the ministry context I was in, and we, we didn't have any money, like we couldn't pay bills for a while. How would we make it? What do we do? And felt like the Lord said, get moving. I came home after the timing belt was successfully changed. And I told Emily, here's what I'm thinking. And she said, I'm all in. Mm -hmm. I said, but I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the money part of it. She said, we're going to be fine. Well, literally the second after that, I go to the mailbox and there's a check for $10,000 addressed to us <laughs> that I did not see coming and it, was, and it was just completely out of the blue and it, it felt like the Lord just saying hey I got this yeah and so that was December 29th the first work day of the new year I went to my boss at Asbury Tom and said I feel like the Lord's calling us to do it I think we're going to regret it for the rest of our lives if we don't so one way or another like we we intend to take steps of obedience. And uh, Tom really graciously accommodated our sense of calling. And uh, Asbury said, let's do this together. What has it been like? And what has been your experience launching Cornerstone with Emily as your partner? Like in that partnership of husband and wife doing this venture together? I think for us, it's felt like the most natural thing in the world. Emily and I started dating when I was 16 and she was 17, and we've been together 20 years. I think this feels like the natural extension of our relationship. As we've had more children and as Emily has you know, been homeschooling, there's still a little bit of grief that there are things that she, she can't be as all in as she wants to. I will tell you, it blesses my heart to no end that Emily is sad not to get to go to both services every day, every Sunday. <laughs> And, um, she's sad, you know, I, I've tried to have good practices and like no family members are ever on the board of our church, but Emily is so invested. She wants to be in the middle of it. And so it's still very much a shared ministry. It's still, uh, we still have a life outside of the church, but Emily is like my invisible, like my, my invisible, not secret partner in every conversation that I have with the staff and every board meeting um, in, in birthing a sermon every week. Um, it's still very much like our shared thing together. And um, so much of the course correction that happens in me comes from Emily's wisdom and 
she's just she's the best. I love that you said that because I think there's a lot of people who are a part of Cornerstone that maybe don't even know Emily. They or they might know of her but haven't seen her. And so I'll just echo what John has said in the experience of being a friend, a close, close friend of Emily for all these years that I heard you once say, John, I don't know if you remember this. I remember you said something to the effect that Emily has a great mind, something you complimented her brain. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, like he just like hit the nail on the head. Like Emily does have a great, she's a deep thinker. She's incredibly um, intentional. And then that matches that with practicality. So she's a deep thinker, but the woman can execute. Um, I think this is a natural segue to actually ask you about start transitioning to the actual launch of the church. But I want to ask you as we do that, who was there in the beginning? So other than Emily, kind of your partner in all of this, what were the significant relationship that helped you launch the church? Well, there have been many, many people who in the years before Cornerstone became a thing, prayed and talked and counseled with me. In the very beginning, um, there were 10 families. Five of them were our age and five of them were our parents' age. My parents and my in-laws were among those older families. The 20 or so of us um, ventured out of Asbury in May of 17. And we had been sent by uh, the denomination we were with at the time to some workshops on how to plant a church. And, and some parts of that were good. And some parts of that we found were gimmicky, like offer people free family pictures in the park, but do a bait and switch so that you can actually get them interested in your church. And I thought, I don't want to do any of that. And I, the team didn't want to do any of that. And uh, a friend of mine, Andrew Forrest, who ironically is now the pastor of Asbury, yeah, that's had cool. said, said to me about the time, hey, look, your church is going to be great. Jesus said in John 15, 5, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. So just remain in Jesus and the church will be fine. And so we as a, as a team tried to do that together collectively. So that we, we prayed that summer, planned, visited churches, and tried to ignore, not in a spirit of hubris at all, but tried to ignore a typical script for how you do it. Here's how you have an effective church plan. We just tried to pay attention to the Holy Spirit, follow our own instincts. And that fall, another probably 30 or 40 people from Asbury joined us. And we were officially commissioned to go start this church. We launched on January 18th. Nope. January 21st of 2018. And I remember at our old building being downstairs uh, where people weren't entering and they were walking up the hill toward the sanctuary. And I'm looking at all of these cars coming in the parking lot. And I think, who are these people? Why are they here? And our little sanctuary with, you know, 10 rows of pews, it was just packed with like 250 people that day. And, uh, it was so special. And, uh, how I, the both the vulnerability and the gratitude that I felt on that day and the love and affection I felt for the people who for the last six or seven months been a part of the journey of starting the church was, was overwhelming to me. You know, what's funny is, um, we have a picture of that day. We're sitting on the front steps of this church that has been a dream starting for five years or so with our three children. 
know, Gideon, we were pregnant with Gideon the year that happened. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, Lord, thank you for giving us this great gift. Man, Dustin and I lived that, you know, our own version of that story. And it was, yeah, I mean, this podcast episode is not about our experience with launching the church, but one of the most um, significant experiences in our life in the church, I think, ever, especially having been two people that grew up at the same, you know, birth to January of 2018. Well, I guess before that, we're at the same church, except for during college. So, um, and, and I do, want, I want to say, Asbury was such a, so much of what made Cornerstone launch well, and I think, Lord willing, like continue well, was it just was birthed from the very healthy soil of that church. Yeah. In thinking about how you were experiencing the launch in real time, what stirred up insecurity or doubt for you? Well, my inexperience, unquestionably. Mm-hmm. I read in Edwin Friedman's Failure of Nerve that when you're stuck in chronic anxiety, you're locked into either or thinking, you you feel like you're trying really hard, but you're stuck on a treadmill, you're not making progress, you're addicted to data to validate your decisions. And he says that to break out of that chronic anxiety, you need a spirit of adventure. And when you have a spirit of adventure, you minimize the importance of mistakes, you just keep rolling, and you put yourself in a position where you could get lucky. And so the things that did make me insecure were, I was feeling like I was in uncharted territory for me. And every decision was, many of the decisions were first decisions. So, you know, we had to navigate conflict in the launch team and and in the church as it started. And then we had staff and um, there were people who came and there were people who went. And especially at the beginning, it's like, okay, what did I do? But the insecurity was primarily inexperience. I've never been the guy. It's nice to have a boss that you can blame or complain about. Um, but now I'm the one that people <laughs> potentially are complaining about or, uh, so it was, it was the inexperience, the novelty of the whole thing that was, that was so difficult. Okay. What increased your confidence? Like what gave you the assurance? This is the way to go. Well, uh, originally it was the families who said we're in, and these are people who are not lightweights. There was also a sense that, oh, the John 15 trust in God abiding in Christ stuff works. The Lord opened the doors for us to have the first building that we met in, which was perfect. When we were ready to find a music leaders, worship leaders, I listed the position and Ben and Noel Kilgore, uh, who I'd worked with at Asbury years before, Ben I'd been listening to since I was 16 years old, independent of each other, reached out to me saying, we're in on this job. I didn't know it was separate. It wasn't like they had talked at home that night and then reached out to you. It was like they separated. No, no. And, you know, Noel has the voice of an angel and like, you know, leads worship so powerfully and been in really large churches. Ben at the time was being flown out to, you know, Willow Creek in Chicago or a church in Phoenix. And I remember telling them, guys, we are not those churches. We have 10 rows and pink carpet. And they wanted to be in and they're still in. Thanks be to God. I think how God assembled the staff, uh, the staff was just wonderful, wonderful at the very beginning. And then the Lord just sent people to us. And so I had a feeling um, at the just little mile markers, like 
we're moving the right direction. One of the things that you have, uh, the advice you've given me when we uh, had kids, you said, you know, becoming a parent, it's easy to anticipate the challenges, but it's difficult to anticipate the joys. What were some of the joys that you did not anticipate with launching Cornerstone? I think one of the big joys has been the people along the way who God has worked in their life through the unique temperament and personality of the church. So some of the ways in which we chose to embrace just being ourselves, like keeping all the lights on and handing microphones to people who are not great public speakers and, you know, Lord willing, being uh, kind of a low ego, low production church. For all those people who had felt like cogs in the megachurch machine or uh, like casualties of a high publicity, high performance culture and felt like they just got thrown to the curb, coming and finding a place of healing. I think also in the context of Tulsa, which can be so polarized politically, um, not trying to be moderate, but just trying to defy the either or and ask really good questions. People who have found healing or who have returned to a posture of openness to the gospel and to the way of Jesus as a result of the ministry of the church has been really meaningful. A joy for me has been watching people who did not know each other five years ago. They're, they act like they've been best friends since they were children. You know, to see really, you know, to see friendships grow, that's been fun. Um, and the whole thing for me is just, I don't know what's going to happen next. I would not have guessed that we would join the Anglican Church of North America. So some of it, the, it's the adventure. It's been the adventure of, wow, I wonder where this whole thing's going to go. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's brought up, that has, that has, uh, oh, it's like, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. Wow, God's done really cool stuff. I wonder what's going to happen next. And that's been, that has been uh, filling me with joy. I'm so thrilled that we're capturing you telling this because this is the stuff that I think God calls us to remember. I had somebody yesterday ask me, like, what about when remembering is hard? And that's a whole nother series. But it caused me to think in the last 24 hours about, okay, well, why does God call us to remember? Like, Where in scripture is that? And it's always, I think, I'm still unpacking this, that he wants us to remember his goodness and his faithfulness and that history, that highlight reel. That's what we play over in our mind when we're in a season of waiting or we're in a season of suffering or whatever, that God's given us a memory mm -hmm. of his goodness. And we, I, I just, I love capturing it. So. That's like that's Lamentations three. There, this I call to mind, and therefore have hope, because yes. the Lord's great love were not consumed. Okay, tell us how Cornerstone became an Anglican church. What I would really like to say is that uh, as we were discerning, you know, options, we did a very thorough investigative study of every option that was out there. But no, I think in a spirit of adventure, the Lord providentially opened doors. Tom Harrison and I had a conversation in in the summer of nineteen where he said, John, I think it's time for Cornerstone to launch on your own. And I thought, that was a, I thought that was a good move. And we had some concerns about what it would look like to stay in our denominational context as a board within Cornerstone. And so we just began to pray. And I had already scheduled this woman, now a friend of mine, Ashley Matthews, to come and preach at Cornerstone. 
the time we're having these conversations. And before she came, I thought, I'm going to look up uh, her church's website and kind of see what their deal is. I'd heard her speak at a conference. And on their church's website, it said, we take a three streams approach to ministry. The evangelical stream, believe in the authority of scripture, want to see people come to faith in Christ. The charismatic stream, we're open to the Holy Spirit. And the liturgical stream, we believe in kind of the best of the church, the creeds, prayers, liturgies, and these three streams you know, form one river. And it said at the bottom of the website, we belong to churches for the sake of others, which I'd never heard of. So I read everything I can find about churches for the sake of others, and it turns out it's a diocese of the Anglican Church of North America. I've never heard of any of this stuff. And I read everything that I can find on all of it. On the bishop of C4SO, Churches for the Sake of Others, Todd Hunter, I read his book, texting and calling friends around the country. Tell me about Todd Hunter. Tell me about C4SO. Tell me about the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. And it felt like uh, that's this is who we already are. You know, we're scripture-based, Christ-centered, open to the Holy Spirit, and we also do like liturgies and creeds, and we like the churchiness of the church in its best ways. And so by the time Ashley came to preach, our board met with her and we asked her a bunch of questions and doors were opened for me to spend time with Todd Hunter, the bishop, and the clergy of C4SO. And again, one of those significant moments, just like when I was in third grade and just like when I was in seventh grade, just like when a $10,000 check showed up, I was earnestly praying that week. Lord, just plain tell us if we should join this thing. And I was at breakfast in San Jose, California area. Uh, with, I was sitting at the table with TJ and Reese Johnston and with Brian from Fuller and Emily and I are there. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, uh, John, what would keep you from doing this? I will bless this. And mm -hmm. I start crying at the breakfast table out of the blue. They're like, what is happening? And anyway, the Lord just opened doors. I want to transition to talking about how the experience of launching Cornerstone impacted you. How have you grown? I've grown in a lot of confidence that who I am and how I am is good. So I, I would say that growing up, I had a fair amount of insecurity that basically all that I had to offer the world was that I was nice. In fact, there was a, there's a childhood experience that I took on as being descriptive of who I am, that when I was growing up, two older brothers and my dad, we had a lot of uh, land, which meant a lot of yard work. And Saturdays, we'd go do yard work and the big boys do the real work. And I'm the one who goofs around and makes people laugh and goes and gets water for people. And that's pretty much my contribution. That became an insecurity for me growing up and even into early adulthood was I'm good to have around, but other people do the real work. And there was a moment early in the experience of launching the church where that insecurity really came to the surface for me. And I was feeling not great about myself. And I was driving down the Brooklyn Air Expressway, taking, uh, I think, probably Libby and Sam to Bass Pro Shops on some Friday where I was hanging with them. And the song from my old Bible teacher at Metro Christian, Phil Blunt, came on shuffle. And the song was called There Are Rivers. And the chorus says, there are rivers of living water flowing out of me where your goodness and your power overflow, bringing healing to the desert and refreshing to the thirsty, filling river, filling valleys with your rivers of living water. 
I just, again, I just started to cry in the car. And I remembered stuff that I had learned from conversations with World Vision over the years about when people don't have access to water, women have to go really long distances. That increases the chances that they're to get water. They're going to increase the chances that they're going to be victims of human trafficking. When you don't have access to good water, um, preventable diseases goes way up. Infant mortality goes way up. Water is really important. And it was in that moment that I felt like in my temperament and in my work, what I do is what I do now is what I did when I was a kid. So I bring water to people and that's a good thing. I think the process of all of like that, my, my calling, my personality being validated by the Lord in that way has given me confidence to just be weird. Like, to make my stupid joke about the comedian Emo Phillips that four people in the world know about in the middle of a sermon and not care too much if only four people get it and only two people like it. And so I think the biggest thing for me is I just I feel like I'm walking in greater assurance that God did a good job making me. And I need I don't need to be David trying to put on Saul's armor, trying to be like some of the other pastors that I respect. I need to be faithfully following Jesus, be myself. That is a good thing. How has the experience of launching the church influenced your hope? The church often feels, and I don't mean Cornerstone, I mean the church. It often feels like a terrible strategy. Like the people listening, I hope, love the church. But the church is so broken in lots of ways. I think about the church and hope like, um, you guys are going to su be surprised to hear me bring this up, uh, the Lord of the Rings. In the story, you know, the, the plan is to destroy the ring of power, not use it, not take it into hiding, but to destroy it. And they've given it to the two, from an outwardly perspective, two least capable people, Frodo and Sam, the hobbits. And later in the movie when you're we were reaching the real like conflict point someone asks gandalf the wizard you know do you have hope that this is going to work and he says there never was much hope only a fool's hope and when jesus tells stories about what his kingdom is like it's usually not using triumphalistic imagery the kingdom of god is like a mustard seed the kingdom of god is it's, it's small. Uh, and in the course of time and in the wisdom of God, it proves to be something that's mighty, that offers something valuable to others and a safe shelter for others. So I think one way that it's influenced my view of God and, and hope is this feeling that this is all ultimately God's project. God is patiently guiding creation toward a good, good end. And so I just feel this assurance as I see little pockets of hope uh, that like this is this is ultimately God's thing. Uh, my contributions don't have to feel triumphalistic or grand. I just need to faithfully do my thing, pay attention to what God is doing, and ultimately He's the one who will see this through. It makes me think of the Eugene Peterson book that you've talked about a lot, John, the a long obedience in the same direction. Yep. It also made me think of. I can't believe I'm the one referencing a water deep song. But oh, I'm actually, right I, actually, I think it's one of my all time favorites is where, um, what did the lyrics say? 
it's a long, hard road with a good, good end. John, what's something fun that you're working on? Do we have fun in life at this stage? <laughs> a okay. little. Something fun I'm working on, fun for me at least right now, is uh, Ben Kilgore and I get to write a lot of songs together. Uh, so we just shared a new one, um, just a new verse to All Creatures of Our God and King. But the next thing we're working on that I am really excited about is I have been teaching through the Anglican Catechism. And the Catechism is a question-answer way of teaching people the basics of the gospel. And I've, um, I am working to create with Ben these beautiful recordings to help people to memorize the questions, the first 17 mm -hmm. questions of the Catechism. So uh, really pretty music. You'd hear the question, what is the human condition? And the answer uh, you hear question and answer, question and answer, question, and then it's quiet just for the beautiful music. So you can practice on your own as you're driving around town. And so it's a, a tool for helping people to be transformed through the renewal of their minds. Cool. And so that's a, a creative project that I hope will reach maturity sometime next year and we'll get to share with people. John, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so much fun. This was fun for me. I <laughs> Yeah, thank you for the invitation. We should hang out more often. Dustin, help us out with the closing here. Uh, John, as a J.R.R. Tolkien uh, scholar, is that what I would call you? Uh, Aspiring armchair expert. Uh, and also as a priest, can you please combine those two things and give us uh, a Tolkien quote as a benediction? Well, the, the standard elven greeting or the standard elven like blessing is may, may the stars shine ever upon our meeting, something like that. Uh, the elves, of course, loved Varda, uh, who uh, was the uh, Valar over the creation of the stars. Uh, and originally in Aina, the Ainu, a singular <laughs> version of the Ainur, which came from the oh. town of Iluvatar, also known as Eru. Is this real? Oh, yeah. I wish I had a great combination blessing, uh, um, but I could I could end with the the priestly blessing of numbers, which I say in church every Sunday. <clears throat> May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. that lovely. I mentioned this in the episode, but recording John telling the story of Cornerstone is something that means a lot to me and Dustin. If you listen to the episode of Dustin talking about his startup Narrable, then you know, or I'm going to remind you, that the tagline for Narrable was stories that matter. I think the story of Cornerstone matters, but not on its own. It matters because it's a record of what God has done and what he is doing. And that's why remembering is so important and why I keep talking about it. Why I think remembering can be a discipline or a habit or a calling. And so as I close out this last episode of the year, I want to ask you, what stories do you have to tell? What stories do you need to revisit so you can remember not things that are hurtful or painful, but stories that, that draw you to the heart of God, that draw you to remember what he's done and what he's doing. And I hope you'll spend some time this week and heading into the new year, and by heading in, I mean, I guess the next 48 hours, <laughs> thinking through these questions. 
What do you need to remember so that you can remember God's goodness? What has he done? And send me a DM or a text if you have my number. I'd love to hear your story, but be warned because you might have to tell it on a podcast if you do. So right now, I'm at my husband's office working through some vision and goals for the new year. He's helping me because he's a genius at this kind of stuff. And starting next month, we're going to finish out our study of Proverbs and then launch some new content. So we're going to study more scripture. We're going to hear more really cool stories, do some more series of people remembering certain things, stories with certain themes. So I hope you'll continue to tune in and happy new year.